You know, one of the things that I had a professor who talked about this a lot when I was in seminary, he used to call it Sunday school theology. I'm going to try to pop out here a little bit. He called it Sunday school theology, and Sunday school theology by his definition was um, we have all those stories that we learn growing up. If you went into church growing up, I didn't go to church growing up. But if you went to church growing up, you had all those stories that you learned. You know, Daniel in the lion's den, Tower of Babel, creation, Noah's Ark. And he, he said Sunday school theology was about really rooted in the fact that people didn't know what to do with those stories. And so then they, they kind of make them into something they're not supposed to be. And so, for example, um, with the book of Daniel, and Daniel is, gets, he doesn't, he prays to God, and the king finds out, and the king has him thrown into the lion's den, and, and then the lions don't eat him. And so then we wind up making the story into something that isn't really Christ-centered or even centered on the provision of God across all generations. We we humanize it and we make it about like, well, you got to dare to be like Daniel. Like, are you going to be like Daniel? Are you going to be brave like Daniel? And we keep call that Sunday school theology. So when we take the big biblical picture of interpreting the Bible as to the author's original intent, we take that out of it because that obviously wasn't the original intent of the author when he recorded that story. One of those classic, classic stories is David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story of David and Goliath, David is a, a young teenager, and God picks him over his other brothers that he's going to be the future king of Israel, even though he's just a little old lad, a little young lad, shepherd boy. And one day, David is bringing his brothers a bad lunch because his brothers are at the front lines, um, and they're waging war. And the war is, the way they did war back then, not all the time, but a lot of the time is they would use champions. Or maybe if you saw the movie Troy, you saw this when Achilles goes and fights that guy who's 12 feet tall, right? Um, the idea with the champion was one person represents one army, one person represents the other army. Whoever wins, it's the transitive property. You wound up winning. Your side wins. Let's all go home. And so uh, the Philistines and the Israelites are there, and David's brother there with the Israelites. The Philistines are there, and they have this guy named Goliath, who's really tall. He's really tall. The Bible suggests that he's a descendant of um, the giants of old, which is one of the reasons for the global flood. In Genesis chapter 6, his blood is diluted, diluted, diluted. He's still really big. He's like 10 or 11 feet tall or something like that. And nobody will fight for him, you know, or fight against him. I wonder why. And so David comes up and he drops off the uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on Moss's. And, uh, and he says, how come nobody's fighting this guy? This guy's making fun of our God. And they're like, well, have you seen him? He's really tall. Remember, people were short back then, right? You go to George Washington's house, like that guy was three and a half feet tall. <laughs> right? So I don't know how tall they were in David's name. They could have been two feet tall for all I know. Right? And so David says, I'll fight this, this guy. And so David goes down um, after arguing with King Saul about what he was going to wear. He goes down. He gets five smooth stones from the river. And he stands in front of Goliath. And, he, and Goliath is saying, I can't believe you're coming at me with this little dog of a boy. Like, he doesn't even have a sword. How dare you come at me? 
And David basically says, look, I come in the name of the Lord my God. How dare you insult my God? And David picks up a stone in his sling, and he whips it around, releases it, hits Goliath right on the forehead. Goliath falls like a chopped down tree. David then walks up, picks up Goliath's sword, chops Goliath's head off with his own sword to add insult to injury. And this is what we see in verse 48. David reached out into his bag, took a stone, he slung it, and it struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with just a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And he ran over and stood over him. He took a hold of the Philistine's sword. He drew it, and he killed him. He cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines all the way to the entrance of Gath. That's where they were from. And their dead were strewn along the road. And when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. Now Sunday School Theology says, look what you can do. You're just a little brave. If you're just brave, Imagine what you can do. But that's not really the point of the story, is it? The point of the story is not about how, how David is just baller. The point of the story is that God is really big. It's not about imagine what you can do. It's imagine what he can do. So the question that I want to pose before you today is, would you imagine what God could do? What has God done? Well, you know, the story of David and Goliath looks forward to another battle of epic proportion between champions. And it looks forward to David's great, 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 great grandson, whose name was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, which just means the anointed one, just the way his, his great, great, great grandfather, King David, 14 generations removed was anointed as king. Jesus was anointed as well. He was anointed when he was baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon him at his anointing. And Jesus comes up toe-to-toe -to -toe against an enemy, an enemy that was frank, frankly threatening not just the Israelites, but the whole world, and that was the enemy of sin and death. And he goes to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where some people believe that's where Goliath of Gath's skull was buried, by the way. And he goes, and on that, on that hill, he's crucified. He's crucified, and, and what we know is that he's crucified, he's dead, he's buried, but then three days later, he comes back to life, breaking the chains of sin and death. You see, because Jesus stood, like David, Jesus stood on our behalf as a champion for a war and a battle that we could never do. And then he defeated that enemy, swallowed up death, is what it says in Isaiah. And on that mound, he swallows up death, swallows the great swallower, drinks the cup of wrath. And because of that, he's victorious. And because he's victorious, who else is victorious? We are. Jesus anticipated this. That's why he said this. He said, it's not until the strong man is tied up then you can do what? Then you can ransack his house. But you've got to tie him up first. 
And what happened in David's day? Well, once Goliath was killed, what did the Israelites go and do? They ransacked the house. They pursued the Philistines all the way to the gates of Ekron at the entrance of Gath. And Jesus, upon his resurrection, he looks at his motley crew and he says, I have all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Essentially, Jesus is saying, metaphorically, spiritually, go ransack the camp. The battle's already won. See, that's what God has done. That's what God has done. Jesus said, it is finished. And so the question is this. If this is what God has done, how should it shape your life today? For some of you, you're here and, uh, and, and you, you've never surrendered to King Jesus. You know about King Jesus. You know who he is. You grew up hearing the stories, but you've never surrendered to him. You've never given him control in your life. You've never waved your hands in the air and said, I give up. I'm done. I tried to live life my own way. Now it's time to actually give control over to you. If you haven't done that yet, then this, your own sin still rests on your head. Because there is a, there are two ways to righteousness. That's what Romans says. Jesus is the way that is free. And the other way is trying to be perfect, which you can't be. And so it's actually not really a way. But now God has made manifest a way of righteousness apart from the law by placing faith in Jesus. If that's true, how should it shape your life? That's what God has done. And so the next question is this. Well, what is God doing? What is God currently doing? Because we're waiting for him to return. Believers, it says, true believers anticipate and look forward to with great eagerness the return of Jesus. It's one of the fruits of salvation, by the way. That if you don't eagerly long for Jesus' return, it should give you pause in your heart. That maybe you're in love with the kingdom of this world more than the coming kingdom. Okay? And so, what is God doing now? Because right now we're just kind of waiting, it feels like. And as we look through the scriptures, we see it very clear what God is doing. 1 Peter 2.5, he says, You yourselves, talking about those who have come to surrender to King Jesus, he says, you yourselves are like living stones and you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing. He's building a spiritual house with spiritual stones, which are people. He's establishing this, this called out group of, of people called the church, right? The church, not a building, but a people, the called out ones. Like we just sang in that third song. Habakkuk 2.14, what is God doing? It says, for the earth will be filled. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I don't know how much of you guys have traveled. Maybe this is the extent and the ocean of the water that you've seen. Um, but flying into Southeast Asia... And going around Indonesia, and you realize you're in an archipelago of 17,000 islands. And it's just, for those of you who have, some of you guys are commercial fishermen, and you've been out, you know, miles and miles and miles away from the shore, Coast Guard, men and women who have seen that. There's a sense where you realize how small you are. How big these things, how big the ocean is. 
how massive it stretches out as far as the eye can see. That was the first thing I thought of when we flew in Southeast Asia five years ago, almost to the day, as I looked out over these little atolls that were just, you'd see this little atoll in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I just thought, just God's glory spread everywhere. To what end? To what end? Well, to the end of Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12, when John says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude of people that no one could number. And there was people from every nation, and from all tribes, and people groups, and languages, and they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God, who's Jesus, and they're clothed in white robes, and they have palm branches in their hands, which is a sign of them worshiping and honoring him as king, and they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, and he who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Couldn't help but worship. That's what God's doing. God is building a people, a new kingdom. He's building a kingdom, not someone born of flesh and blood or the will of a father or the will of a person or their own will of themselves to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, but God is building a new people who are born again of the spirit and the blood. That's what God is doing, and he's doing it until there are people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language who were formerly Muslim and formerly Buddhist and formerly animist and formerly Hindu and formerly raised Christian but didn't actually believe it and formerly atheist and formerly agnostic and formerly Shinto and formerly and on and on and on and on. And he's going to get them all into one big family and then the end will come. Matthew 24, 14. And if that's what God is doing, how should it shape your life? Today. What does God command? What has God done? What is God doing? What does God command? Well, 2 Timothy 2 2 summarizes it nicely. Those of you who have gone through our disciple making program, you've heard us talk about this before. 2 Timothy 2 2 says, Paul, this is Paul talking to Timothy. It's the last book Paul wrote before he died. Like his famous last words, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, for those of you who haven't gone through our disciple-making program, how many generations of people are in that verse? Paul says, what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, that's two generations, entrust the faithful men, that's three generations, who will be able to teach others also. 
Four generations. Paul is describing four generations of disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. I have an acquaintance who says that when he goes into a church to consult, if he doesn't see four generations of leaders in the room, he knows the church is on its way dying. Because this is the command of God for his people. It's not for you to do it until you die and then no one else can take your place. It's for you to equip others, will equip others, will equip others. That's the only way the perpetuity of the gospel moves forward. This is what we've been talking about over the last five weeks. Multiple generations, by the way, is not a new concept. What's basically the first or one of the first, if it's not the first command that God gives Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Jesus says in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's Jesus' way of saying, be fruitful and multiply. Even in the last chapter of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride, who's the Bride? The Church. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You're talking generations of making disciples, making disciples, making disciples, even in the last book of the Bible. It's throughout the scriptures. See, God is building a family. He's building a family. It's not a family of flesh and blood. It's a family that is reborn. We don't fill this family through physical procreation. We fill this family by having the seed of the gospel go and land on hearts, impregnating them with the imperishable seed and the hope of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. That is what we do. God's building a kingdom. And he's going from town to town, and he's finding people who will be in, in his kingdom, who will follow him as king, and who will act as ambassadors to spread his rule and reign. God is assembling a building in which he will dwell, each of us, a stone in his house. God is building a nation together, and each of us is one of those tongues that we read about in Revelation 7, praise, singing praises to our king and proclaiming his goodness to one another. If this is what God commands, how should it shape your life today? Listen, what does God want to do with your life? Is God chiefly concerned with how you'll retire? Is he chiefly concerned with whether you buy an Xbox or a PlayStation? I mean, we laugh, but how many young people spend hours on the internet debating which console to buy? Is that what God is chiefly concerned with? What does God want to do with your life? You see, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 culminates at the end of this beautiful paragraph talking about how you were dead and you've been made alive 
and how God went to great lengths. You didn't do any of it. He did it so that no one can boast. And look what he says in verse 8. He says, for by grace, that's a gift, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Infusion is a lie that we talked about in our, in, in our, in our worship time. This is a gift of God. It's not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Because we are his workmanship. In other words, we're the product of his hand, of his labor. We are created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. You're freed from the burden of working to make yourself right before God so that you can then do the work of God. And it doesn't matter how much you fail at it. Doesn't matter. Because it's always his work. And if anything works out, is Jesus Christ at work in you by the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for Bill, for Mark, for Eddie, which God prepared in advance for me that I should walk in it. Not your works. i got to stay in my lane. And you have to stay in yours. You have your works to do. That's what we talked about last week. As an ambassador, you've got a gift, a new life, and you have a task. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching a sermon at a synagogue. It's really fascinating, by the way. If you analyze Paul, you look at how he shares the gospel in Acts 13 versus how he shares the gospel in Acts 17. In Acts 13, he's talking to Jews. In Acts 17, he's talking to pagans. And you look at how he shares the same gospel differently to each audience. But in Acts 13, he's recounting the Hebrew history. He wants them to know that he understands this rich history which points to Jesus. And there's just two verses that I want to highlight from that. Acts 13, 22. Speaking of King David, Paul says, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified... This is what God says about David. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. What is the evidence of having a man after his own heart? He explains it. A man after my heart. Well, what does that mean? Who will do all my will? What is the evidence of having the heart for God? That we raise our hands and we cheer? Well, maybe... But the truest evidence of having a heart for God is that we surrender to do all his will. That we will obey King Jesus no matter what the consequences are because he's king. And then in Acts 13.36, this is the epitaph on the tombstone of King David, so to say. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, he fell asleep. And he was laid with his fathers, just saying that he died. Can you imagine what a great thing to say? After Bill was done serving the purpose of God in his generation, God warned him. Isn't that what all of us want? I was like, I don't know how to do it. I said to Gina, being this morning, I said, being a pastor is one of the biggest frauds. Because I'm trying to tell you guys things I haven't figured out. I haven't figured it out. But this is what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to obey him. 
That's God's plan for your life. If that's what God has planned, how should it shape your life too? I want you to imagine what God can do. Imagine what God can do. Look, God has given clear commands. I'm especially talking to you guys who constantly sit around and you wrestle with what am I supposed to be doing? How do I obey God? What should I do? What do I need to do? How do I do it? You know, should I should I do this, that, or the other thing? Should I move to Africa? Should I, you know, should I start an orphanage? Or what should I do? God has given clear commands in his scripture, and those clear commands serve as guide rails for your life. You don't need to worry too much about, you know, well, should I should I live in North Cayman or should I live in the villas? Should I live in Irma? I don't know if God really cares. Okay? What we do know is that you're commanded to make disciples and make disciples. We know you're commanded to pursue holiness. We know you're commanded to love one another. Are you commanded? The things that are clearly commanded in Scripture are clear, and the secret things belong to God. And within those clear commands, love one another, make disciples, honor one another. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faith of men who will in turn teach others also. Within those clear commands, God has given you and your family and revolve unique talents, abilities, history, skills, resources, bank accounts, educational backgrounds, and so on and so forth. He's entrusted those to you as a manager. And now your responsibility is to manage that well, to do the good works that he's created for you in advance, that you would walk in them, so that you too can have a heart for God that is committed to doing his will, no matter what, and you can fulfill the purpose of God for your life in your generation. We're commanded, walking with the mind of the Spirit. That means setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, not setting your mind on the things of the of the flesh. This is all Romans 8. We're commanded to leverage all that we've been given to walk out his commands to the best of our ability. And if you try to figure out all the specifics of Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, you won't. You won't figure out the specifics. But you walk in the general direction as clearly outlined in the word of God and God leads you into the path that he had already prepared long before. I want you to imagine if every believer at Revolve, some of you guys aren't true believers yet, we're glad you're here. And I'm glad you came to the church that isn't going to just tickle your ears and tell you that if you stay, we'll give you a free iPad. But we're going to tell you the truth. And the truth is that one day you will die and you will stand before Jesus. And he will judge the quick and the dead. And if you do not stand by faith, you will not stand at all. That's the truth. What if every believer at Revolve was committed to helping just one, two other believers follow Jesus' death? I don't know how many people there are here today. Normally we have like 110 adults or something like that, right? Our worship team's not going to get a record deal. I don't have a podcast. I had one, and then nobody listened. <laughs> Except for Breton. And he just wanted to know why I wasn't talking about the creeds. 
right? He's using big words, I don't know what they mean. But what if every believer at Revolve realized you're reconciled to be a reconciler, you're blessed to be a blessing, you're saved to be sent, and that each of us were actively trying to demonstrate and declare the love of Jesus to Cape May County, to your workplace, to your family, and to the world. What if? I mean, can you imagine? What if each of us just tried? Just tried. We can't force it. We can't make it happen. What if we tried? What if every believer at Revolve had just one person or just two people and they said, in 2022, I'm going to commit to actively engaging in that person's life, inviting them into my home, having them over for dinner once a week or twice a month. I want to help them follow Jesus better. Maybe that means encouraging them. Maybe that means praying with them. Maybe it means teaching them to share their faith. Maybe it means teaching them to read the Bible. Maybe it means doing ministry with them and going and serving alongside one another. But I'm going to commit to that. What if every believer at Revolve committed to that? What do you think God could do? If God wants the county, the state, the country, the world saturated with the glory of God, healthy disciples, making disciples, living surrendered lives to King Jesus, what do we do? How do we strategize for that? See, this is the question facing the church today. See, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't just say, go and make disciples. He said, go and disciple nations. That's the literal command. Disciple nations. Huh? How do I disciple a nation? I'm commanded to disciple a nation. How do I do that? Well, see, in the West, we've chosen a strategy. We've chosen a strategy in the West, and this is our strategy normally, all right? I know I'm just painting big, broad brushstrokes. Normally, our strategy in the United States and the West is that we build a church building, we invite people to aforementioned church building, and we hope something happens. But that's not what Jesus did. It's not what Jesus' disciples did. Not that there's anything wrong with having a building, okay? But Jesus and the disciples, they tended instead to meet people where they were. The market, the synagogue, the temple, in homes, at a well. And they would speak truth to them. And so the question is, which strategy is more effective from a sheer numbers approach? All right, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to do some math, all right? I'm a math all right? I'm going to do some math here for you guys. Is it better... For Revolve to plant a church of 10,000 new disciples every year, every year for the next 40 years? Or is it better for me to disciple one person and then that person to disciple one person and then that person to disciple one person? Which is better from a sheer math perspective? Well, at the end of year one, we have two disciples versus 10,000. At the end of year two, we have four disciples versus 20,000. At the end of year three, there's eight disciples versus 
30,000. So far, it's not very impressive. By the end of year five, it's 32 people, right? Shout along, versus 50,000 people. By the end of year 10, it's 1,024 people versus 100,000 people. But here's where it gets interesting. By year 15, it's 32,700 versus 150,000 people. But by year 20, it's 1 million people as opposed to 200,000. So something happens there because the numbers are increasing exponentially where the simple approach of you investing in one person this year and training them and encouraging them, helping them to follow Jesus, and then having them help someone the following year while you start investing in a new friend, that approach in 20 years is over a million people, while the megachurch approach of a new 10,000-person church every year, which is also an impossibility, right? And really expensive, is 200,000 people. Within one generation, the small approach reaches mathematically the entire population of the world. While the megachurch approach is stuck at 330,000. Now most of these, might, this might be unrealistic, you know what I mean? Because one person is a really guaranteed that everybody's, no it's not. But which is cheaper? And which is more reasonable for you to imagine? You and me investing in one person or Revolve planting a 10,000-person megachurch with all the bells and whistles every year for the next 40 years? Which is a more realistic option? And more than that, which has God actually used mostly throughout history? How many of you came to faith, raise your hand, because of a relationship with a person? How many of you came to faith because you were invited to a church that would blow your mind if you walked in the door? Nobody. So why are we investing in the one strategy instead of the other? The kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast that works through the whole batch of God. The kingdom of God it's like a mustard seed, the smallest seed. But when it's fully grown, it's the largest tree in the garden and the birds can make nests in it. The kingdom of God starts small, but grows. Remember back to 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I'm almost done. Friends, I know you want to be a part of changing the world. There's no greater place for you to pour out your life than in helping other people to follow Jesus. A little bit better. A little bit better. See, a mission statement exists. It explains why you exist. A mission statement explains why you exist. Revolve's mission statement has always been to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples until the whole world hears. That's why we exist. A vision statement explains the role you help to play in that mission. It's what things could look like in 20 years. And Revolve's vision statement locally is this. 
through equipping and empowering disciples, that's you guys, to make disciples where they live, work, learn, and play, we seek to saturate Cayman County with healthy disciples, healthy groups of disciples. Our global vision is through coaching, sending, and strategic partnerships, we want to see healthy disciple-making movements among unreached people groups, people who have no access to the gospel. See, your mission statement as a person, as a family, should be identical to Revolves. Okay, so I just solved it for you. To glorify God by making disciples who make disciples until the Holy World hears. But your vision statement will differ depending on who you are, who God's made your family, the resources, talents, abilities he's put at your disposal. Not everyone is going to plant a church. Not everyone is going to go help catalyze church planting in Czech Republic. Not every single person is going to move to India, okay? But God has made you unique. And he has a vision for your life, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And these are questions for us to wrestle through, like, what does God expect of me? What has God given me? What passions do I have? Where is God working? And how can I join him? These are the questions of vision. For our families and individuals, for those of you who want to do family dedication, for families and individuals, it would be beneficial to prayerfully reflect, to craft your own statement for your family. What do you want your family's life to be about? What do you want your marriage to be about? If you're unmarried, what do you want your life to be about? And although you cannot determine the future, you can walk in the right direction because the Bible has clearly laid out for you the guide rails of the commands of Christ. This whole sermon has been about trying to lay out for you what God is doing, what he desires, what he wants to do, what he commands us to do, and then for us to dream about how we can join him. And many of you already are. But I want to invite you to think and pray in the coming weeks about your own vision statement for yourself, for your family, for your discipleship group. And some of you will want to stand, share it with the church, whether you're a family or an individual, your discipleship group, and we'd love to hear them. And we'd love to pray over you. But imagine what God can do. Listen, we want you to dream for God's glory. We want you to dream how we can become less and he can become more. Who cares if anybody knows our names? Really, and we want other people to know the name of Christ. Can you just pray? I know it's 11.07. Can you spend a few minutes praying at your table? And if you are here today and you say, I don't know if I've ever surrendered to Christ, feel free to come up here and grab me and we'll talk. All right? This is God's will for your life. So pray at your tables, please.